It was a terrible event, those four years, uh, which we call the Great War. By the end of those four years, an estimated 23.5 million people had died and 21 million people were wounded. Yet at that first Christmas, uh, 1914, there was a moment, Christmas Eve, there was a conversation that went from one trench to the other across no man's land with an agreement of a temporary ceasefire. Uh, The stories gathered from the archives uh, tell different perspectives, but certainly what we do know is that Silent Night started to be sung in German, and then the British and Allied troops responded. Uh, And then the next day there was this agreement for a ceasefire. And there in no man's land, in the middle, if you like, where blood had previously been shed, there was a game of football, there was the swapping of presents, there was conversations... And yet, within hours, that whole thing was reversed. I I find it amazing. I find it amazing in a couple of ways. Firstly, that in that tragedy, somehow, when, when men and women are at their absolute lowest moment, somehow, even at that point, the Christmas message became incredibly important. I reckon it became more important at that moment than probably it ever had done before because there was a little conversation maybe amongst people or certainly going on in people's minds, the idea that peace is something that we desperately look for. And we all know that in some way Christmas talks about peace. The tragedy was that hours later... Literally, battle was raging again. By the following Christmas, it's estimated that a further 10 million were killed, wounded, or lost in action. So between those two Christmases, there was huge tragedy. So we talk about the idea of peace at that moment in the middle of no man's land, But it's connected to the Christmas story because we talk about peace on earth so much when it comes to Christmas, don't we? It's a time when we hope it's going to happen. And yet, I reckon in lots of ways, that idea brings us a number of problems. The first problem that I think we see is the idea that we don't actually see peace, do we? We don't see peace in our world now, tragically. And yet it all goes back to that very moment where we hope for peace. The moment which is actually centered around a single event of the birth of one baby. 2,000 years later, we're still remembering it. Verse 7 of our first reading says this. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Here's this peasant girl who has a baby in a little backstreet town, which is not really a significant part of the Roman Empire 
at all. And yet 2,000 years later, that single birth, that single event is still celebrated, is still recognized, is still remembered. It was just another birth for all intents and purposes. And yet, here we are, gathered together this evening. We're singing carols that have been sung for so many years. We're reading words that have been read for the past close on 2,000 years. And here we are remembering that same event. But I think I want to throw out, we've got a problem. Because we've got a problem, it seems to me, that the promise of peace doesn't seem to be delivered. That's the first problem. The second problem, I think, is a problem of declaration. The second reading that we saw started like this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flock at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. So here's this moment where it seems the Bible is trying to say to us something dramatic is going on. There is a massive declaration that is being made. It's a declaration which is strong enough and powerful enough and significant enough to be shouted by the hosts of heaven. So that if you like, the idea of eternity for a moment breaks into this world and the declaration of a birth is made. But I want to look at that and say, look at the problem of that declaration. In contrast, Caesar in Rome, who isn't able to speak to the whole of the empire, agrees with his uh, lawyers and all of the other lawmakers and all of the other organizers of the empire that there is going to be um, a census carried out. And the whole of the Roman Empire is mobilized. Imagine that kind of power. Imagine being able to say, this is what's going to happen, and the whole of the empire, pretty much all of Europe that we know, North Africa, parts of Asia, are mobilized because of those words. In contrast, there is a declaration which seems even bigger. It's made from heaven, and yet, remarkably, it's only declared to a few shepherds out on a hillside. Isn't that strange? Isn't it remarkable that God would do that if that's what God has done? There is this massive statement, and yet it's heard by such a small number. And then the statement gets even bigger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. See that? On earth, peace. That's where we get the idea of peace because it's said at this moment by those heavenly beings. It gets even bigger, the declaration. It's heard by just a few. Surely God would make it more obvious, wouldn't he? If he was going to make a statement like my son has come into the world, surely he would make sure that everybody heard. And yet it seems that his plan 
is not to do that. It's to actually speak it, if you like, in big words, but very quietly to just a few here and a few there. And in a sense, to those, I guess, who are listening. The third problem I want to raise is the problem of belief. The Bible's making the most massive claim here. In the early church, right back at the beginning of the church, 2,000 years ago, in the first century, what we read here was dynamite. We read the declaration that's made, and we see it here, that the angels say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Today, in the town of David, a savior has been born. He is the Messiah and the Lord. Those three things. He's the Savior, He's the Messiah, and He's the Lord. I guess if we were kind of first century Jews hearing that, that was like, light the blue touch paper, throw it in and stand back, because that is just a bomb going off in our minds. The idea of the claim that Jesus was the Messiah. What did that mean? For thousands of years, God's people had been promised a Messiah. Right the way through the history of the Jewish people, there was the idea that there was a coming Savior, somebody who was going to save them, somebody who was going to break in and free them from their captives. Well, after all, they were under Roman occupancy at this moment in time. And in the first century, we see this being said, Jesus is that Messiah who's been promised all along. He's your Savior, and even more, we read, He is your Lord. At the end of the day, I guess that gives problems for all of us. It gives a challenge because it is making an immediate claim. It is demanding of us that we confront the question, who was Jesus? Who was he? I was watching, uh, in fact, we mentioned it last week. We'll tweet it out again this week so that you've got the link. We were watching last week, we were thinking last week about um, an interview uh, that was uh, given of Bono, lead singer of U2, who's questioned about his faith and his understanding of who Jesus was. You see, a lot of people, I guess, think about the idea that Jesus was a really good guy. He was just a good guy. And he confronts that and he says, I I actually believe fundamentally that that's impossible. Jesus couldn't just be a good guy. What he actually asked of people, the claims that he made to actually be this Messiah, to actually be this Lord, which is what he later went on to say, are either the claims of an absolute deceiving, horrible person, or they are the claims of a complete madman, or as Bono says, they're true. It can only be one of those three. It can't be good. Because after all, it's making ridiculous, outrageous claims. Uh, And he put it like this. He said, I've become convinced that the claim of Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Lord, to be the Son of God, which after all is why this declaration is being made, I've become convinced that it's true. 
And the reason that he became convinced of that, or at least one of the reasons, was this. He became convinced that the idea that over the past 2,000 years, millions and millions and millions of people have embraced that idea, have become disciples of Jesus and followers of this Messiah across the whole of the world. And he says, I'm convinced of that because I fail to believe that they could be following a madman. I find that a really interesting thought. And fundamentally, it gets right to the heart of the message of Christmas, who is Jesus? Is this baby who is born actually the person who is claimed to be? And does that birth, and does the idea of peace that he declares or that is declared over his birth at this point, does it actually say something different? Does the peace that is being declared about Jesus mean something more if he is who he says he is? Well, yeah, World War I reminds us that we have written deep down into us a basic human instinct for the desire for world peace. The war that ended all wars, as it was described, did not prove to be the war that ends all wars. Sadly, there have been so many who have given their lives since. We are so thankful to so many who have stood in the face of opposition and made the ultimate sacrifice so that we might be free. We value that. We are thankful for that. But the words of Jesus at his birth, or the words declared over Jesus at his birth, just don't seem to ring true. Unless it means something different. I want to just close by thinking for a minute about what it might mean. And how we might understand the idea of peace at Christmas in a completely different way. Because after all, the fourth problem that we have is it seems an unfulfilled promise, doesn't it? Jesus says, I'm the Son of God, I'm coming into the world, I'm making the promise of peace. 2,000 years later, it doesn't seem to have been delivered. Until we realize this, that the actual peace that is being talked about is a much bigger peace than we could ever imagine. We will continue to battle against each other. We will continue to have strife against each other. It is part of the problem of the human condition. But look at what is actually said by those heavenly beings. What they actually declare is this. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So it's actually saying something not about the hope for world peace because that actually continually fails. But what it is saying is there is the possibility, there is the hope, there is the door opener actually for us to have peace with God. That's favor resting on us. Peace on whom his favor rests. The idea that at a really deep level, 
There is, in my being, maybe in your being, in your very deepest recess of what it means to be you, there is that deep knowledge that I have peace with God. It's a remarkable conversation went on, um, interview went on with, uh, and I am a huge fan of a huge amount of mental health intervention and psychological intervention. I think it's fantastic what we've discovered and what we understand about the way our minds work. But one psychologist was, a psychiatrist was interviewed and he said, you know, so many of those who come to visit me would be freed and liberated if they just knew that they were forgiven. (laughs) Imagine that kind of peace with God. You see, that's what Jesus actually introduces, a kind of peace which is unparalleled, a kind of peace which actually doesn't relate to whether we see world peace, but a kind of peace which becomes eternal. If you imagine the idea that eternity opens and there's a declaration of peace, maybe the peace that I have now with God is equally eternal. There is the idea that no matter what happens, In my life, in the events of my life, and even that day when I breathe my last, I know I have peace with God. What a remarkable hope. We sing a a song here fairly regularly. Uh, And the opening verse reads like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, I know that lots of us have experienced that kind of challenge when it seems as though life is just filled with sorrow. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I guess as we close, I I would just hope that for some of us during this Christmas time, something of that kind of peace and that kind of hope might be what we enjoy and what we embrace as a result of understanding a different idea of what peace on earth might mean.